0: Hello and welcome to Loud in the Words, the podcast that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. Gather round. In this episode, we're talking about kindness and generosity, how the fundamentals of human contact shape well-being, about the rise of selfishness, or perhaps just its promotion, and the modern ailments of loneliness. It's a great pleasure to welcome our guests today Gina Reinhardt from the Department of Government here at the University of Essex and Gillian Sandstrom, lately of this parish and the Department of Psychology, and now the Director of Kindness Centre at the University of Sussex. Later, we'll hear from Anna Jones, Rural Affairs correspondent and author of a new book called Divide. So, let's start like this with Gina and Gillian and a quote from Antoine de Saint-Exupery, the writer and pilot. Heroic flights, routine mail flights, under the dome of the desert stars, over mountain ranges, in thin air, all of that kind of stuff in the 20s and 30s. And he wrote, there is only one form of wealth, that of human contact. When we work mainly for material gain, we build our own prison. So human contact in a world where selfishness seems so celebrated, why is this such a fundamental of fundamental importance to us all? Gina?
1: That is such a great question, Jules. And I first have to say that The Little Prince is my favorite book of all time. And I'm so glad that you quoted Sandra Stupeli. Um, so human contact is something that we often take for granted, and I think that we did until the pandemic happened, uh, really take for granted what it meant to us. But basically, it is the way that we become human. And it is what distinguishes us from almost any other species is the fact that we build ourselves based on our contact with others. And so that is how we build trust. Human contact is how we build love. It's how we experience many of our emotions. And it basically helps us get to uh, the very essence of who we become as people. Jillian from a psychology perspective
2: there's lots of research talking about the human need to belong and how it's just this fundamental and how if we don't have that feeling of connection and like we're accepted by other people then everything goes wrong we suffer all these negative consequences so it's just really a fundamental need to feel connected to other people
0: and we know that things have changed in the past couple of years i mean they've it's not going to be limited to two years it's a step change isn't it in in society the the the, the pandemics and the lockdown we we've, we've seen some changes to the sorts of things you're talking about belonging identity the kind of sense of contact the kindness that keeps it going um what what, what have you observed from the last couple of years i mean kind of personally as well as kind of professionally
1: well I think that we have seen, we've learned a lot about loneliness. We've learned a lot about what causes it and what drives it and ways to try to alleviate it. And that actual physical proximity really helps people alleviate that, even even if they're, you know, keeping in touch remotely, if people are trying to distance from each other. Um, and, and still keeping in contact, it's not the same as being in physical contact. That's one of the main things that we've learned.
0: Yeah, it's something. There's something um, intangible. It, it, it's there that that changes. I remember the first time last autumn that I spoke to a physical audience for a year and a half. i you know in a, in a big theatre. It was just amazing, fantastic. What's going on there? You know, it's just there's there's an energy from from people being together, isn't there?
1: Right. And and the sense of touch has always been really important in ways that most people don't think about. But just being able to touch someone else's arm or shake their hand or be close enough to touch someone really does change the way we think about them. And it affects our mood and things like that in, in ways that I think uh, people are only now most people are only now realizing. Yeah,
0: we'll come back to loneliness specifically in a moment, if we can. Jillian, uh, what what would be your thoughts about that?
2: Well, I've done a lot of research looking at the interactions that we have. With weak ties, so those are acquaintances—the people that we're not close to—and I think that that has really changed over the pandemic. I hope that people have sort of started to realize that they really have been taking those kind of interactions for granted. Because in a way, like Gina was saying, we've been able to sort of keep in touch with the people we're closest to, although not in the same ways. Um, But then this whole wider network of people—that you know, the people that we pass in the hallway every day, um, you know, the people, the person that we know at the shop who who knows our name a lot of those also disappeared and, and people haven't really paid attention to those relationships and what they mean to us. And I think, you know, maybe we're starting to realize that they're more important than we thought.
0: So tell us about those strong ties and weak ties. So the, the strong ones are just the more common ones or the ones with friends and family. Uh, the weaker ones are the, the indirect contacts that we have during the course of our Yeah, and I
2: I think weak ties, you know, there's a huge range. So at the bottom end, a tiny step up from a stranger, it's just someone who you recognize and recognizes you in return. Um, And so I started doing research on this topic because I developed a relationship like that with this lady who worked at a hot dog stand. And uh, every day I would walk past her um, at the campus where I did my master's degree. And um, just the fact that she knew who I was and would smile and wave at me as I walked past, made me feel so good and I wanted to know more you know is it just me am I crazy Um, or is this is this a thing do we all have these kind of relationships that make us feel anchored and sort of part of the human social fabric
0: and that's as you said that those weak ties are the bits that you are not doing on zoom to catch up people during lockdowns I mean you know it's bad enough trying to make them work with people you know very well let alone all of those, so we lost those those weak ones. Well, Gillian, tell us a little bit about strangers then. And you you've written that you talk to strangers, um, or did as a as a I, way I of kind of. I
2: still do. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> still ex- found ways. <laughs>
0: Explain what it is that you do to get people talking, and why that kind of talking matters. I mean, you've just said that with the 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 hot dog stand, the woman there, and then the talking. I mean, maybe communicating. It might be a wave, a smile. And that changes the way we feel about the day in some sort of way. But you deliberately went out to see what happened when you did that.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, because of this relationship with the hot dog lady, I started doing research on weak ties. And and one of the first research studies I did during my PhD, what I wanted to study, which I didn't end up exactly studying, was that relationship that people have with their favorite person at the coffee shop who knows your name and knows your order. And you have that little chat every morning. I don't actually go to the coffee shop. But (laughs) I know that, you know, I've had those kinds of relationships. But I couldn't quite figure out how to find those people who had that kind of relationship and figure out how to study it. So what I ended up doing was the closest thing I could think of, which ended up being a study involving strangers so I, I did a study at Starbucks and as people walk down the pavement outside Starbucks I gave them a gift card um, and I asked them when they went in to, to follow some instructions and they either had to um, turn the interaction as they bought their coffee into a social interaction and ha- you know smile have a nice little chat and lots of people said they do that all the time or I asked them to be as efficient as possible um, and have their money ready and avoid unnecessary conversation and what we found was that having that little tiny interaction with a stranger, you know, turning it into a social opportunity really made people feel better. They were in a better mood and they felt more connected to other people. And so my research has sort of come out of these personal experiences. But then because I do this research, I feel like I have to walk the walk. So even though I'm very much an introvert, um, I'm obsessed with talking to strangers now. I do it all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, have, I've had lots of really interesting conversations where I've learned things. I've had free vegetables from people's allotments. <laughs> uh, I joined a book club. I was invited to join a book club by a complete stranger. So some really fun and interesting things have happened. But then also, you know, a lot of conversations are nothing special. Um, but I think that they matter, too, because it adds up to this feeling that I could talk to anybody and people are generally good. And it sort of builds those feelings of trust in other people more generally
0: and Gina we're talking about loneliness it's missing all of that isn't it um for for the most lonely for the individuals who are in a completely cut off or cut off because they haven't got the engagement so they might be interacting but they're not able to kind of get something from all of that right that's that's a a kind of modern ailment isn't it
1: yes so loneliness is really the difference between what you want out of human interactions and what you have. And it's completely possible to be surrounded by others and be lonely if you feel that you aren't understood, if you feel that, that you don't connect with anyone around you. And it's completely possible to be alone and appreciate that as solitude rather than loneliness. And so really loneliness is is a cognitive Uh, discord, right, between what you have and what you want to have. And it it is based on the company, right? Um, People or things. uh, A lot of people are less lonely with animals. So that's why I say it's not always people, right? People, pets, etc. that make you um, feel like you belong, feel like you're understood, feel like you have uh, something to live for, some people feel happier, more trusting, etc. And loneliness really is the manifestation of the lack of all of those things.
0: Mm. So a lot of kind of modern discord, discussion, um, discourse is about the economic value of everything that we do. We reduce the world into these kind of units that, that relate to transactions and buying stuff and selling stuff and making it and thinking that's a definition of, of success. Um, a former prime minister of this very country some decades ago said there was no such thing as society in her belief that actually all that mattered was the economic unit. And yet what you're saying here is something that is of fundamental importance to people. I was intrigued by your use of the, the gift uh, before the people went in the shop. So I think there's a kind of element of giving here that kind language could be a gift. Um, you don't have to actually have a thing that exchanges. Oh, language can be a gift as well. Is that is that not the case also?
2: I, I mean, when I, I am lucky enough to live across the street from a park, Abbey Field. And, um, and so I've been going for a walk nearly every day throughout lockdown and the whole, you know, not lockdown, but, you know, when we the were allowed business. to go out for, you know, to get some exercise um, and having just being able to see other people has made me feel so much better. And, you know, there, I remember one day where I was just feeling really low, you know, kind of like weepy. And I don't even remember why. Just one of those, you know, human things. And I went for a walk in the park and I, I wasn't even really looking around me. I was just stuck in my head in that negative cycle and this woman with a pram walked past, and she smiled at me. And, you know, it's not like I was instantly happy upon that moment, but it really did sort of help me break out of that negative cycle in my head, you know, just that person looking at me and and sending that small signal. And I feel like, you know, I hope that I was able to do that for a lot of people in the park when, you know, the pandemic was just starting, we were all feeling uncertain. You know, at first, I'm so used to talking to strangers and I felt like strangers are dangerous now. And I didn't, you know, I wanted to stay away from people and I didn't even look at people. And I realized, well, I can still smile at someone. I can still wave and say hello and acknowledge, you know, our shared humanity and the fact that we're going through this really crazy thing together.
1: Um, And I feel like it really can make a difference to someone. Absolutely. I remember the first time after the initial lockdown that I was allowed to have people in my garden and we sat on, you know, in opposite corners of the garden, you know, several meters away from each other. And I just couldn't even stop smiling. I said, I can't even tell you how overjoyed I am that you're in my garden right now. And it was it was shocking. I I know that I'm an extrovert. I know that I prefer to be around people but I did not know how difficult it would be to not be around anyone. And it is, you know, loneliness protects itself. It's kind of insidious. And it can, people, when they're feeling lonely, can also feel like, well, no, I don't want to go out. I don't need to go out. I am fine right here. I'm tired, you know. And sometimes we really do have to shove ourselves kind of out for the walk, out to a coffee shop, out to just be around others, even if we're not talking to them or interacting with them. It can, and and this is a particular uh, benefit for introverts, is that it can be, really helpful to be around people, even if you don't interact with them. And so you can just go out and, and sit and watch people go by and it's still better and and still improves yourself.
0: It's interesting, we're talking about individuals here. So let, if we went up a, a level, as it were, and started to think about how these sorts of opportunities or behaviours or interactions become kind of fixed into ceremony and to ritual when we start thinking of institutions and structures that help these things or hinder them. Um, uh, Some years ago I was sitting with some Amish friends a summer night in Ohio sitting around the table in the farm orchard um, a tablecloth on the table food from the farm barn swallows swooping around water pumped from the well in the kitchen um three generations present and elsie says shall we have ice cream and the kids jump up in the air and shout and everybody was smiling and so that's a kind of ritual it's simply a meal it's simply sitting in the orchard eating the evening meal but everyone's kind of interacting in a in a particular kind of way that affirms belonging and identity is intergenerational which is kind of interesting and people are smiling as a result of all of that or it's kind of part all of that it's an input as well as an as well as an output so do we also then need ceremonies and rituals and institutions to help these things happen more and what has happened recently where maybe some of them have drifted away. For example, the church would have been a really important ritual each week to bring people together. They might not have talked, but they would have interacted by walking past each other, sitting down, common ceremony. So do you think do we think kind of ceremonies and rituals have a an important role to play in this idea about kindness and generosity and addressing loneliness?
1: Absolutely. Ceremonies and rituals are very comforting for people because they reduce the uncertainty of life and when you participate in a ritual you know very much what to expect and in rituals particularly that uh, be- that are associated with a particular religion for example anywhere in the world you can participate in a particular ritual for your religion or for a group that you belong to that's worldwide and that's a very very comforting peaceful even if it's a very uh, gregarious sort of ritual it is a a big comfort for people to be able to know that they understand what's going to happen, what is happening, and that they belong in that place and that the people around them have the same basic understanding of that. That's why we often stick together in groups that we associate with and that share common rituals, even if it's something as simple as how we eat dinner or, or whether we eat dinner, you know, or something much more complicated like uh, different rites of passage and, and different religious rituals and very often we associate in those groups and it can look as though we're being exclusive or or xenophobic uh, afraid of others but in reality what it often is is being very very comfortable with people who know the same things we do and and not having necessarily the courage or the interest in finding out about other things
0: yeah. So it's a weak ties, strong ties thing again, isn't it?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is.
2: Um. Like, what jumped to mind for me, though, is that yes, rituals, but also there's other ways we can get that structure. And I think, I think British people are really fortunate in the institution of the pub. <laughs> you know, a pub is a place where people can just show up, and and it's okay to talk to strangers. You know, this comes down to norms in a way. What what are the social norms, and you know, I'm 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 going back to talking to strangers. I'm a bit obsessed with that, but it, I find it really fascinating that it's okay to talk to the taxi driver, but not so much the bus driver. It's okay to talk to someone who has a dog, but it's not okay. You know, like there's there's all these very nuanced rules that we've come up with where we've decided when it's okay and when it's not okay, and those are different in different places different places within the same country or different countries. Um, and they change so dynamically. You know, we could change them in an instant if we decided to. And so one thing that comes to mind sort of related to rituals is since moving here, people, I've heard so many people tell me during the Olympics in London, everybody was talking. You know, it was it was like this excuse, like everybody had permission all of a sudden. It was okay to do it. And then as soon as the Olympics are over, back back to not talking. Um, and so I find that really, really fascinating.
0: There's the f- famous story, Brodkowski told us first of all, about the Kula Ring in the Pacific. It's an area of the Western Pacific, the Trobriand Islands, which are distributed over thousands of square kilometers. And sailors travel from island to island carrying a shell necklace and, and shell armlets um, that have no kind of economic value but they have enormous gift value and they travel from island to island and they give the, the shells to other people who then sail to other places. And sometimes they're stranded because they're against the winds and they have to sit there and wait six months before they can go home again. But their reputation grows with the giving of things that have no economic value. I mean, they probably would say they do have economic value because what's the difference between a shell and a dollar? I mean, it's the kind of same thing, really, isn't it? If, if you think it's important, it's important. But but they get the giving and the gift culture creates this kind of reputation and story that makes people feel as though this is really important. So there's a kind of set of rituals and ceremonies that have lasted hundreds, possibly thousands of years um, uh, in in the region. And people are simply going from one place to another and telling them a story, the gift of language, um, but also giving something to seal that. And I think there's something kind of quite interesting about how we develop ways of saying Being together is important, but then going over there and carrying something and giving it to them is also important in the way that you did outside Starbucks and in the way that maybe social prescribing is trying to help happen in a kind of formalized way here. So giving, I mean, a smile is a gift, obviously. We've, We've kind of talked about that, but there are other forms of gift that help this kind of kind language emerge.
1: Right. So there are, so you mentioned social prescribing. That's the uh, service that the U.K. government has determined everybody should have available to them within the next couple of years. And that's part of their campaign to end loneliness. And the idea is that instead of, you know, when somebody's feeling down or not quite right, instead of trying to find a clinical solution or a medical diagnosis, quite often what they might need is a social prescription. They might need to get out and interact with people more. And social prescribers are meant to facilitate that by really helping people determine what it is that matters to them, what their goals are. It's a, it's a really sort of person-centered coaching scheme to help people take control of their health and well-being. And the idea of gifts comes into that really solidly, right? Gifts are not only given so that the recipient Can appreciate it, but also so that the giver can appreciate the experience. And it feels good to a lot of people, right? To give somebody something that makes them smile and makes them feel good or something they appreciate, something you see them use later or put in a special place a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to give people for holidays and birthdays and things like that and very often just little things like a thank you email or a little note throughout the day those are gifts for particularly for very lonely people but they're gifts for all of us really anything that's given freely and and without demand of something in return, is something that can really help build relationships, help dispel loneliness, and really help people just feel better in their own well-being. I'm not
2: sure I have much to add in in terms of gifts. Uh, Going back to your comment about a smile being a gift, uh, one thing I've thought of a lot about social prescribing, you know, often it's some, you know, it can be about helping someone find out what they're interested in, maybe encouraging someone to go join a community group or join a choir or that kind of thing. And I think, you know, that's focused on the, the lonely person and helping them sort of get more opportunities for social contact. But I think a lot about the people who are already parts of those groups and how they can really give a gift in a way by welcoming people. Um, and, you know, when you're new to a place it can be really scary to to walk in a room and not know anybody right i mean i think i think probably that's something that almost everybody would say is a really frightening thing to do. And so it, it really is a gift to welcome people, to, to sort of pay attention and notice when someone is in that situation um, and welcome them in. Um, and and every once in a while, you, you know, like it, it's a small thing that you might not even realize that you're doing. Um, I feel like there's been a few times where people have told me that I've been that person for them. I don't even remember, but for them it was something really meaningful. And I can think of examples, you know, when when people have done it for me and how meaningful it, it's been. So,
0: for for, for social animals, we're, we we find it super hard to move into new contexts, don't we? We need help. We need we need guidance. We need some expectation, as you were saying earlier, Gina, as to, as to what, that it will be at least a pleasant experience. And if somebody is reaching out to you and saying, welcome, in you come, especially if there's a kind of, if you're joining something where people are more skilled already, for or example. Or already know each other. Or, you know, the same same kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So how how hard that is to do that. Um, and maybe you just need the space to be able to, I'm thinking of the example of the temple or the church again, you might it's just fine. You just walk in, you sit down. You are already part of it. You're welcomed, and maybe just somebody kind of nods or just smiles and says, "That's that's all you need." But but we we probably need more help to do that than we would have done in distant times. Perhaps now. we need structures like the social prescribing. Uh, most of the most effective ones are have a, a so-called link advisor, where an, an individual is is. Pushing people in a particular direction, um, and that's kind of doesn't happen automatically. It needs somebody to be a guide.
1: Right. Well, the link worker is really instrumental because they help the participant, right the the person receiving the social prescribing service, to think about what they're capable of doing. And what they really want to do and help them realize the resources that they have. So I think, as I said before, loneliness protects itself. And it's very easy to sit and say – perhaps not even realize you're lonely, right? Maybe you feel like something's wrong or something's lacking, but then convince yourself, oh, I couldn't ever go to that place. I couldn't walk into that such situation. Those people wouldn't want me there. And the link worker can be very important in helping break down those barriers, even accompany you to a place. In some cases, some link workers will do that. But also sort of make the entree, find someone who can accompany you or help you get to the place, right, that you're trying to go physically so that you don't feel as though you'll never make it there on your own. Different things like that that can break down that uncertainty and make it a little bit easier to walk into that place. Just as a side note, that's how I met my husband, by the way.
0: <laughs> in, in a social prescribing context. No, no, no. All right. but
1: it, in a context of a big group of people that I was not welcomed to um, once on a Saturday night. And then the next day I decided, well, I wasn't going to let anybody else be in that situation. So I saw him sitting on the side of the room and I went and introduced myself. And that was how we met.
2: Gorgeous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What a lovely story. Well, I mean, that takes us right to the heart of it all, doesn't it? I mean, it's about social interaction, but it's about something more than that as well. That Unless we make the effort in the way that you just described there, the prompt came from being in that circumstance. But unless we're making that effort in the way that you've made the effort to speak to strangers, Julian, um, then there's no return from that. But But we need to be able to feel comfortable to... To do that. And
2: can I jump in? I think we need to turn it into a habit in a way. I think, you know, a single, you know, we might build up our courage and have, you know, one interaction, but it's hard to, we have a hard time generalizing from that. So I've, I've run lots of studies where I get people to talk to strangers. And so I'm always asking people to predict how a conversation is going to go. I force them to actually have a conversation, and then they report back on how it actually went. And, you know, every time people say it went better than they expected and all of those things that they worried about didn't happen. But... (laughs) it's hard to go from that to having just having had a pleasant conversation. People still don't predict that having another conversation would be pleasant. So, you know, Jules, if I just met you, I might say, well, we, ha- we just had a lovely chat. But Gina, I've, I've never met her. I, I have no idea how that's going to go. Why, why would I think that a conversation with her would go equally well? Um, and so we have a really hard time sort of generalizing that way. Um, and so I, I've done a study recently where I had, p- I, I, I wanted to fix this problem. How can I make it stick? How can I make people realize that generally these conversations go well? And I thought, well, I need need to get people to have lots of conversations. But how am I going to do that? They don't even want to have one. Uh, So I I turned it into a game and I developed this scavenger hunt game. And so people had these missions to do every day, like find someone who's wearing a hat or find someone who's drinking a coffee. And they had to go up to people and, and have a little chat. Um, and or or there was a control group and they just observed and didn't talk to people, and so over the course at doing this every day for a week really did seem to help. People progressively got more confident, felt more confident in their abilities to sort of start and maintain and end the conversations. They were less worried about being rejected, uh, which happens very seldom, less than 10% of the time people get rejected. Um, And it was a gradual change. So people needed to have that repeated practice. Um, And we followed up with people a week after the study ended and it seemed like their attitudes had still stayed more positive. So, so I think practice really does make perfect. And although it's really scary, um, you know, you can you can really build up these skills. You know, uh, here I am an introvert. <laughs> um, you know, who's who just I just love talking to strangers now. And and I think I, th- I think in some ways it's easier for introverts to talk to strangers because you it's a time limited thing. You can walk away. You never see the person again. It doesn't feel quite as scary. Quite as it doesn't have that same weight as you know talking to someone that you're going to see again next week. And what if they don't like me and all that kind of things? So it, it's kind of freeing in a way. And so turning it into habit, I think, has extra benefits.
0: Let's slip away now and hear from Anna Jones, author of the new book called Divide. Well, welcome to Anna Jones. Anna, you've written a fine and wise book called Divide, full of rural stories, a plea and a call to action. Um, You've asked to think about respecting our differences, particularly within the rural context, um, and how we might think about creating a healthier society, a different kind of food system, more inclusive rural communities. So tell us about the book Divide.
3: The book had been in my mind a lot longer than I consciously recognised, actually, um, and only when I was given the opportunity to, to write it. By the publisher did it all just spill out? Thoughts that I never even knew were there just suddenly were just on the surface, waiting to be explored. And that was really a feeling of being torn down the middle all the time. Uh, you know i'm I'm a farmer's daughter from a very traditional small farming community uh, up in the Welsh borders in the uplands. and um that heritage, that upbringing, so often was in direct conflict with the life I went on to have living in the city, working in the media, um, and living a very urban lifestyle. And I had felt for a very long time, torn in two, with a very split loyalty between these two homes, these two identities. Um, And the book is exploring that sense of division, and also the stress that can come from feeling like you want to be part of both of those worlds but often feel that you're neither that you never quite fit in and i thought well i can't be the only one that feels like this so i wrote the book to um hopefully get that conversation going
0: well i think it's very interesting how you show um it struck me that that it the the divides was, were were not binary they were multiple and complex that it wasn't dividing in two uh, by two, it was dividing by 30 or by 300. That the, the the diversity within the Welsh farming communities that you know, and the changes across generations, um, showed a much more kind of complex and and kind of kind society than it appeared to be from from looking outside at those kind of apparent divides I mean as you say you feel them specifically they're there but they're more complex and and quite different to how they might be represented
3: that's such a wonderful way of reading it because it's absolutely how I feel there is so much kindness and so much good and the some of the um the more angry sentiments that we read about or we might see on social media i never really experienced directly and it makes me wonder how real they really are because you're right it isn't binary and it isn't black and white but they're so often put into these binary frameworks that make us have very simplistic discussions um, that really bear not much they're unrecognizable from the reality and I often find myself a bit sort of mute and goldfishing at dinner parties or going down to the pub or wherever I might be in a social setting when friends or colleagues start having conversations about our food system or the environment or diets or politics, and everything is so fast paced and binary and simplistic and angry. I just sit there not saying anything. I'm just in this goldfishing thing because I don't even know where to start on bringing out those 30 different angles that you just mentioned that I know to be true and I know to be real because I can't get it out over a pint in the pub. I need to sit, we need to sit for many hours talking about these things to even get to the complexity. Um, So very often I just sort of observe and feel a little bit sad inside because... You can't engage when it's just one side or the other. It needs to be so much more than that. And hopefully, <laughs> writing a book gives you a chance to delve a little bit deeper and look at some of the other angles.
0: Perfect. So let's let's hear then uh, um, one of the stories, which I thought was lovely. The, the, this this kind of myth that it takes um you've mentioned with the with the context of the the Welsh communities, fifteen generations to feel local. <laughs> well, you know, there are all sorts of variations of that um, um across the country. Um uh, but maybe not. The Welsh farmer from Birmingham um who uh receives the National Sheep Farmer of the Year Award um does so wearing Doc Martins because he has a kind of completely different kind of set of cultures and norms. And yet he's also a very competent sheep farmer, one of the best at doing that particular job, but doesn't look like what you might think of as a sheep farmer. So is that yes. what we're kind of seeing? That, that, that Tell us a little bit about that that kind of story. Well,
3: John is a punk and star loving skinhead, Doc Martin-wearing Welsh farmer from Hamsworth Wood in Birmingham. And uh, he's the son of a butcher and, and grew up in inner city Birmingham, um, went to uh, school in a very disadvantaged area and um, had quite a hardcore upbringing. He saw a lot of stuff very young. And um, his dad was had had farming in his blood going back a couple of generations and had always wanted to to go back to farming i think it was his it was his grandfather that farmed and had spent his adult life at weekends looking for farms that he could rent or buy and uh, they they'd go off from on day trips from birmingham on a sunday looking for a farm and um his dad was 60 when he finally found a farm and it was in this very sparsely populated tiny village in powys in, in the most rural and um most sparsely populated Part of Wales. And we're talking about Wales, which ain't hugely populated anyway. So it gives you an idea how remote it was where they ended up and um, bought this farm. And uh, John, who was about 18 at the time, 19, um, you know, further education wasn't really working out for him. He decided to go with his dad and um, built this sheep farm. And like you say, turned it into one of the leading sheep farms in the country, they have they've done extraordinary work there, um, how they've refined their flock with uh, different breeding, different genetics, uh, how they're managing the pastures there and has become a real farming success story. Um, but at the root of it, I wanted to talk to John about the identity side of it. You know, how, how did he come from this completely different world and find himself at a home in a rural world that was different in almost every way? And then the story is about how he found that new identity while keeping hold of his urban identity at the same time. Uh, it was just, yeah. Was, it's very interesting. A, and so
0: so he was able to hold together those different identities. There's the, the his father starting farming when he was 60. My goodness. Um, his backgrounds. Um, and then how is he uh, taken on within the kind of Welsh farming communities? Is he respected for... What he does as a sheep farmer, even though he looks different and might be very different from them, because that kind of suggests that the divide is being crossed, that that actually it's being brought together. Do they have a common language then?
3: Yes. I mean, I met John for the first time when um, as a result of doing a Nuffield farming scholarship and and he is also a Nuffield scholar. And, uh, you know, he he has. It's not just about doing the farming. He has joined that community. And he has made himself a part of that community, but not forcing himself in, not kind of turning up and going, right, I'm going to set up this group and that group and we're all going to get together and do this. He's done it in a very soft way um, by asking people's advice, talking to local farmers about, you know, what they know about the land and learning from them and just gradually over years building relationships and then getting involved in farming groups and unions but not you know office holding and looking for the top job just by being a grassroots member and um just mucking in at the coal face really and um he slowly kind of built climbed the ladder and and built a bit of a profile for himself but he is the most self-deprecating person you could meet what did he say to me he said uh (laughs) What did he say? Don't promise too much and prepare to be disappointed with his kind of motto for life. So he's going into, you know, rural communities often are very self-deprecating. Certainly my family, uh, we tend to kind of uh, tell stories about trip ups rather than triumphs. And uh, I think John's character fitted in very well with that. It was a kind of, you know, there was nothing brash about him or anything that could ever be perceived as being big headed and he just slotted in and the thing that i thought was fantastic is um, there's two communities in the village where he lives there is what you would call inverted commas the true locals who have lived there all their lives and then there is a new community because they built about 40 houses not so long ago so they've got a lot of inverted commas newcomers to the area that have moved in And uh, John said there's only his family and another bloke down the road who get invited to the social things of both groups, who he is part of the local group and the incomer group. And um, that was very telling because there obviously is a cultural divide. John has figured out a way to bridge that and become part of two communities.
0: Very interesting. And in the the book, you talk about the, the importance of understanding the diversity of race, of Gender divides uh, the the potential kind of conflicts around the meat issue and diet, um, particularly from um, uh, landscapes that rely currently on on producing animals. Uh, the the kind of uh, grumbling issues around fox hunting, um, uh, and these are kind of big kind of divides within society, as you rightly say. And yet here we have examples of people able to find the kind words to bring people together so just is that really the key message that comes from the book divide that that those differences exist but there are these possibilities stories individuals that help to bring together and to create a language that makes us feel kind of happy contented able to work together
3: yes 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 absolutely and it's you are it's perfectly possible to be content and and happy working together, even though you have completely different views. and And the key word that you said there, George, is individuals. and um what I found throughout writing the book was that the divides are only real when you look at the big picture or you look at groups or you look at ideologies. it's that's where it exists. Take it down to the individual level kind of just disappears in your hands. And you, you you want, where is this thing gone that is causing all of this stress and heartache and pain, kind of just disappears. And it becomes about people and conversations and uh, respect and conversing without agenda. I think that, that it's about having conversations with people where you're not going into that conversation to with the agenda of changing their mind or recruiting them to a certain way of thinking. You are going into a conversation with genuine curiosity and understanding that it doesn't matter what they say. It's not going to change your principles or your morals. And to feel secure enough in your own beliefs to be able to open your ears up to somebody else's beliefs and not feel that that is an attack or any threat to you. And and that is where the rich stuff is that's where the treasure is because that's when you learn about people in a way that would surprise you and people come out with things that you would never expect.
0: Perfect thank you very much indeed Anna Jones Rural Affairs Correspondent for the BBC The Guardian and elsewhere Uh, wise words indeed about how we can bring people together in the rural context as you said there but also these big issues that appear to split us there are ways and words of kindness to help that happen. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Welcome back. In the Edo period, one of the famous wandering poets was Ryokan Taigu. And um, I'm speaking to an expert here who speaks Japanese, China. Um, he's, one of his his quotes was, How can I possibly sleep this moonlit evening? Come, my friends, let's sing and dance all night long. I'm kind of interested also in the, the things that we might choose to do that's called a thing like let's sing together in a chorus or let's dance um, uh, that actually creates the context for this social interaction that we've been talking about, but also different languages and different kinds of words that we might use. So, Gina, you play music.
1: Right. How does that
0: kind of how how do you how does that work out into what we've been talking here as well?
1: So I have sung in a choir for many years of my life in various choirs, and there are so many benefits that music brings to us. Right. Um, The same is in a band. I play the drums, and there's certainly an interaction between musicians. When it comes to something like a choir, particularly when you have four or eight parts, and yet you have up to a 100 people, there is a lot of effort spent on blending well, on sounding like one voice with all the other people who are singing the same part. And often, let's say let's say a majority of the time, a choir director may be a bit temperamental. So as you practice... They have
0: ideas of perfection. They
1: have, they're very, 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 uh, uh, what's the word I want? Particular about how things go and you know how the volume is go- how the parts are going to fuse together and, and complement each other and uh, how each part, right, is going to take center stage at different times. So... It takes a long time to get 100 people to do that all together, and it can be frustrating, I'm sure, for the person who's trying to make it happen, who's trying to direct it all. So you, as you are a member of the chorus, right, there are people all around you who are singing the same part, sometimes helping you learn your own part. Sometimes you're next to people with slightly different parts, and that can drive you, right, to sort of bring your own part to the fore or, or step back a bit. You're part of a group that's making something really beautiful and interesting and different from what people hear all the time. So you're unified in that goal. But you can also be really unified in your frustration with another uh, group of singers uh, who aren't getting their part right or with the director right If, if somebody's having a bad day. And so it really forges a way of being. It makes you part of this group. And even if you're someone who doesn't speak a lot, doesn't interact with people directly one on one, it can be very nice and feel very good to be a part of something that you believe and everyone there believes is making something greater than the sum of its parts. It's something that is a tribute to the composer, a tribute. Tribute to the people who are listening, a tribute to yourselves. And there is a shared ethos of being committed to it, working together for something that's just sort of for the beauty of it. That is really nice when it comes to music and, and group music making.
0: And the individual can't do that. By the definition, in, the, in that context you've it. described, there something bigger comes out of it all. That's right. That's kind. Of, that's very interesting. How how the activities that we choose and the language and the context can shape that kind of deeper sense of something that we might call intangible, but it's to do with kind of pride, identity, belonging, and so forth. Co- if we jumped into the electronic sphere, then, Gillian. So you've you've written about scrolling, different sorts of scrolling where we spend a bit of our lives, perhaps too much, um, maybe not enough. Uh, but you've talked about kindness scrolling and doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about those and what's what's, a, what's at play there?
2: <laughs> well, I was working with some colleagues and we were doing a study where we were interested in, in sort of people's observations, uh, witnessing other people do acts of kindness and how that might have an effect on us. So, you know, lots of research on... You know, looking at how people feel when they're the ones, you know, performing acts of kindness. But we thought, well, what about when you just see other people do it? And then, of course, COVID came along, and and we couldn't really do that. And uh, we started thinking about kindness kindness online um, because it's sort of a natural reaction that many of us had when COVID came along, as we wanted more information. You know. We're, There's huge uncertainty. And the way many of us deal with that is just, I need to know more. I need to know everything. And so I think... A lot of us were just sort of online all the time looking for more, more, more. Um, And the problem with that is that we can get stuck. I mean, doom scrolling is, you know, a term that's been around for a while. And it just refers to sort of getting stuck in that pattern and just, you know, looking through all these negative things. Um, A bit of an exaggeration in our study. What we did is we got people to just read COVID news. So it wasn't necessarily bad, but it was, you know, it's not
1: good a reminder right? a reminder <laughs> of what good. we're in
2: um and so we thought well you know Maybe it's not, you know, there's lots of lots of people saying, you know, people are spending too much time on social media and it has all these negative consequences. But we weren't interested in looking at it at all because we thought, well, maybe social media has some benefits as well, because there was lots of really good things happening as a result of COVID. You know, we heard lots of stories of communities coming together and people looking out for their neighbors and, and connecting with neighbors that, who they hadn't connected with before and, you know, forming WhatsApp groups and, and all these lovely kind of things that people were doing it, it can sometimes bring out the best in people as well and so we thought well what if people spend their time online looking at those kinds of things rather than just taking in more and more more information um, and so there were there were twitter feeds um, early on i don't think the one the one we used in our study doesn't exist anymore but there was a twitter feed that was dedicated to acts of kindness during covid so what we did is we had people either read a Twitter feed about COVID information for about two minutes, two or three minutes, um, or read a Twitter feed that was just full of these acts of kindness during COVID. And what we found was that the sort of doom scrollers, the one who just took in more and more information about COVID were in a worse mood after just a couple of minutes of, of scrolling. Uh, but the people who read about these acts of kindness were not. Uh, we, we hoped that they'd be in an even better mood than people who, who sort of did neither of those things, but that, that wasn't the case. Um, but it, but it at least didn't have the same negative consequences as, as sort of taking in the information. So bottom line social media isn't necessarily the problem uh, it's you know it's what we're choosing to do with it right and there's lots of research showing that when people are interacting passively if they're you know on facebook and looking at people's perfect pictures and you know of their wonderful holidays and all their friends it's easy to feel bad about yourself but if if you engage with it actively and you're sharing yourself as well you're sharing your news and and you're commenting on other people's posts and appreciating and you know sharing compliments and paying attention then it doesn't have the same negative consequences so yeah just trying to get a better sense of you know it's not the technology but how we use it
0: well let's conclude then with some observations about about what next Um, what what should we be prioritizing if we kind of take a normative view or one where we would be thinking about institutions or or even policies but perhaps that's a little bit too far away but how should society and policy be changing to think about the sorts of subtle and often missed interactions that we've been talking about here, the kindness, the generosity that's actually fundamental to us all. And I was reminded, um, George Valant ran the multi-decade prospective ageing study in northeast USA for, for many years. And um, he had a really interesting question that separated people in, in quite a kind of divided way. He said, what have you learned from your children? This was two older people. And he said some were, said had lots of kind of ideas. So they kind of were able to show what they, how those interactions worked. And some were utterly bemused and said, well, nothing, of course. But it was interesting that those ones lived much less long than those who had, were open to the ideas of other people. And that was rather intriguing. That that obviously didn't happen at one particular point. But, but those people had cut themselves off, even from learning from their children, and it had a kind of consequence in the longer term. So, if we were thinking about the the the, the bigger consequences of kindness and generosity, and what we might be thinking about what we should do, what would you what comes to mind? A couple of things. As well, the first
1: thing that comes to my mind is economic productivity, and that's because. So many of our ways of working have changed in the last two years, and people have realized, oh, I don't need to be in an office. We don't need to pay for an office if everybody can work from home. But we should not forget the benefits of people working in the same space and the creativity, the inspiration that comes from that, and just the general productivity increases in each person based on being driven by the optimism and the, the good feeling of being around others. And sometimes... We get bad feelings being around others. Sometimes we're more sluggish. We don't do as much work. We get distracted, but we need to to not swing so far in the direction of working from home and isolated that we forget and start to lose the benefits of group working together.
0: Perfect, Gillian.
2: I guess what comes to mind for me is just that, you know, there's there's lots of groups out there already trying to do good things, trying to bring people together, trying to bring more kindness. And we just need to create more opportunities for them to do their thing and and get out of their way (laughs) and let it happen. Um, And so, you know, I guess my dream, this isn't, you know, a reality thing, but, you know, what would be great is if we could be more open to just talking to each other and having, having these interactions because everything starts with connecting, right? We, we need to speak to each other and, and be open to hearing about different perspectives and, and it, it can really have this ripple effect that changes everything.
0: Lovely, that's perfect. So I'm going to finish for listeners with a question, a little bit unusually. So first of all, many thanks to Gina Reinhardt, to Gillian Sandstrom. Thank you so much. That was very interesting. The question that we'll finish on is this. You might well ask, how many people live next door and what are their names? Thank you very much.
1: Yay. Thank you.
0: That was Louder Than Words, If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.